Hey guys, welcome back on the macro trading floor. Every Sunday, Andreas and I try and deliver you the most actionable and fun macro trade idea with a special guest every week. So here we are back. My name is Alfonso Peccatiello, which is very complicated. I'm just macro alf. Yeah, I think that's easier alf. Uh, and I'm Andreas Stino, uh, by the way. And, and today, I think we have a very special guest, but we're not going to reveal who yet. <laughs> wow, it's, it's, wow, this guy's huge, man. But okay, let's uh, let's get that done later. So first of all, uh, we need to talk about markets, Andreas, yes. because this week we've seen quite some moves, I think. And it actually all starts, I would say, from markets getting more nervous about what I call the growth scare. Uh, if you look across asset, Andreas, and correct me if I'm wrong, you see cyclical commodities, copper, industrial metals, all that stuff rolling over pretty aggressively. You see, as a result, inflation expectations in Europe being like two or three standard deviation lower in a week, quite a big move down, mm. which is then spurring a fixed income rally led by the front end and the belly of the curve, especially, which basically means we are pricing in now a slightly less aggressive ECB, a slightly less aggressive Fed, and it's the front end leading the entire rally down, but it seems to be driven by this growth scare. So do you agree with this assessment, A, and B, what do you make of it? Well, I, th I think it's a month ago, uh, I wrote a newsletter called, does anyone care about demand anymore? Uh, and it suddenly seems as if people start caring about demand again, because we've had these signals from forward looking indicators on demand for quite a while, basically across the globe, in my view, that demand is starting to roll over quite materially. Uh, but it's um, kind of felt as if everybody looked at the supply side as the one to gauge uh, in terms of how to position, also in terms of how to, to position uh, for the uh, future uh, reaction function for central banks. Uh, but at some point, of course, if demand rolls over quickly enough, then we will get the snowball rolling in the sense that uh, industrial metals will start selling off more than what we've already seen. Inflation expectations will start dropping materially. And that could have an impact on central bank reaction functions, even despite spot inflation being at very elevated levels. Uh, so it will be kind of a tricky debate over the next month or two with uh, very elevated spot inflation and potentially falling inflation expectations in the far end of the uh, term structure of inflation. Uh, and mm. therefore, I'm a bit mixed on how to position for this right now. Uh, I have a few ideas, uh, but I'm, I'm not sure that it's crystal clear that you, that you can go ahead and buy bonds yet, for example. Yeah, so one thing about buying bonds actually will depend, again, on the reaction function, which is always a mix between spot inflation and the composition of inflationary pressures and inflation expectations down the road, right, if you're a central bank. So we can talk about that later for a second, but I wanted to ask you, what does this mean for other asset classes? So before we talk bonds and we become all nerdy about that fixed income stuff that you and I can become nerdy about, let's have a chat about like, equities are down again on the week. And again, led by the high beta stuff, the growth stuff, but also, you know, the weak balance sheet thingy, like the Russell 2000 in America is, is rolling over pretty aggressively. Um, crypto also uh, oh, showing God, yeah. signs of stress, big sign of stress, cracks under the surface everywhere. Finally, we have a week where Bitcoin and Ethereum move in standard deviation terms in a significant way in a week. So according to their implied and, and realized goal. Um, so the thing is when bonds rally, Andreas, then people are used in their mind to think about, well, if bonds are rallying, then the discounting rate of future cash flow becomes lower, blah, blah, blah. It's all more supported. I can buy risk assets, but that's not what's happening now. So what do you make of risk assets in general? 
Well, uh, first of all, I think it's pretty clear that the risk sentiment is uh, as bad as it gets, more or less. I, I've been traveling um, continental Europe this week, meeting institutional investors, for example, in France. Uh, and I can tell you that the mood is bearish as beep out there. Um, I, I, it felt like I was just taking punches in, in each of these meetings with investors uh, because everybody has lost money. Um, and uh, that is, of course, a good in, a contrarian indicator. I mean, maybe the best indicator right now for going long risk would be that everybody hates risk right now. Uh, maybe that's also the only argument that you can use right now. Uh, but if you look at the um, uh, volatility that we've seen in NASDAQ, for example, but also in Russell, we've seen them moving three, four percent um, in intraday, um, basically in both directions over the past 10 days, um, but but mostly down. Uh, we've got NASDAQ more than 15 percent down over the month. Um, I mean, it's very, very hard to come up with a good story for risk assets right now. Uh, the the interesting part is when will lower discount rates turn into a good story for risk assets? Uh, in my opinion, not until central banks actually pivot. Uh, so this bond rally that we've seen is only like an anticipation of a um, slightly less hawkish stance from central banks, but we need to get sort of the feeling that central banks are actually pivoting on the stance before uh, it's a green light to go long the riskiest part of uh, of assets right now, I think. And you talked about realized volatility. And I think it's an important thing for the audience to understand that the S&P last week moved in two consecutive days by something like three and a half percent. And if you look at the daily distribution of the S&P 500 since 1970s, you see that three and a half percent belongs on the very, very far tails. We're talking about multiple standard deviation events two days in a row, which is like the probability of that happening is extremely low. But also it tells you that investors are very nervous in harvesting risk premia right now. Because if it's true that risk premia are widening, the return you can make by deploying capital into this risk premium should also be measured against the volatility you have to take against it, right? And so this today, let's say this sharp ratio or implied sharp ratio in taking a risk premium obviously doesn't look good because of realized and implied balls which are going up. And as you say, unless we get signs that basically suggest that central banks can literally take the pedal off the gas, uh, then in terms of tightening, yeah, then I'm afraid that this, this realized ball is going to remain high, which makes you know, taking risk, a very complex exercise. We, we, we had this discussion with uh, Mike Green a few weeks back from Simplify Asset Management uh, on whether the Fed was already close to breaking the market. Uh, and I, I personally think that we get more and more signs of that. Um, we have these very weird canneries in the coal mine, um, which to me is a signal an early signal that markets are starting to 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 break as a consequence of tighter monetary policy so far i would actually even go as far as saying that the fed probably salutes uh, these pockets of bubbles uh, popping uh, around uh, in around various asset classes for example in crypto i don't think they care at all in the fed whether crypto uh, drops 50% in value, uh, they shouldn't care uh, so so that's uh, also the case but it is an early signal that uh, we start to see cracks on the very far end of the risk curve. Um, for example, we had this uh, Terra staple coin uh, falling off a cliff this week, and I even think that um, the trading has been halted uh, by the time we record here. Uh, so the question is, which assets to look for in terms of a pivot from the Federal Reserve? Which asset 
um, does it require uh, a break within before the Fed is really willing to, to pivot? And my usual take is that it's, it is the credit space that you need to watch for signs uh, of, of the pivot for, from, uh, from the central bank. I don't, I don't think we're there yet because spreads are not that wide in, in, um, in credit spread, uh, in credit space yet. Um, so that would be my take that we simply need to see more turmoil in credit space before the Fed is really, really willing to look at it. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. And also the situation is materially different, which makes central banks much less prone to pivot this time because of higher levels of inflation and higher levels of inflation expectation. Talking about that on Wednesday this week, and we are recording on Friday, the 13th of May, by the way. So on Wednesday this week, we had the CPI report from, uh, from the US. And actually, <laughs> I saw a lot of people focusing on the year-on-year inflation having rolled down. Well, of course, I mean, there must be a point, we all hope, at which year-on-year inflation actually rolls over. It's 8.5%, guys. Where do you want it to go? Uh, I think you have to look a bit more under the hood there into the details of the report. And what I figured out is that uh, if I look at the composition of what is driving the month-on-month core CPI, which was 0.6, much higher than expectations, so the pace of this slowdown seems to be a bit slower than the Fed expected and also all the economists expected, but also the composition of the contribution to inflation is interesting because the stickiest part of the baskets, what you warned about, Andreas, about six or nine months ago already, shelter, mostly shelter, yes. is actually picking up pretty aggressively. We have X energy services inflation, so like core services prices, the stickiest part historically of the inflation basket at the highest level in terms of pace of growth over the last 30 years. So if it's true that we are slowing down, it's about the pace of the slowdown and the composition of the slowdown. Is inflation becoming stickier? So what do you make of that? I, I think a very important remark from a Fed member over the past 10 days in relation to this inflation print uh, was from uh, the FOMC member Daly. Uh, and mm-hmm. she essentially said that the Fed should consider selling mortgage-backed securities outright as a consequence of the rise that we've seen in shelter costs in uh, the inflation index. Uh, and it, it is uh, fairly easy to showcase that uh, there is a time lag between an increase in nominal uh, residential house prices uh, until you actually see the increase in shelter costs in the um, inflation index, uh, a time lag of between one year and one and a half. Um, and therefore, if they want to take uh, a, a firm stance against rising shelter costs, then they would almost need to orchestrate at least a moderation in house prices, maybe even a sell-off. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the Fed would actually like house prices to go down a bit. I have to agree with that. It, it, it kills two birds with one stone, right? The, the reverse wealth effect you're trying to engineer to slow down demand Actually, you know, house prices represent a large portion of the wealth effect where we have created over the last four years. So you slow that down and you slow as well the attitude towards buoy and consumption, right? That's one thing you achieve. You lower aggregate demand via second round effects, via lowering house prices a bit. The second is that with the lag, as you just said, you also lower the pressure of shelter inflation that seems to be now picking up pretty aggressively. But Andreas, instead of being so, you know, gloomy like we are, um, there is one main reason why to be longer. And you know what it is? Is that Gene Kramer went out with a, no, it was not Gene Kramer, but it's CNBC that went out with a market in turmoil episode. So market in turmoil is basically the perfect contrarian indicator. Every time they get out with one of these episodes where the talking ads go all nuts and the, the sky's falling apart, you always have with a 100% hit rate, six to nine months later, a positive return in S&P. 
So here you go. You can just you can just buy it. It's done. We have a marketing turmoil episode, Andreas. Yeah. <laughs> Good idea. Go along for folks. <laughs> but I, I mean, in, in relation to that, Afonso, I, I, I received a very hilarious message in my inbox over the past week um, because I've been accused of uh, lifting bonds all year, uh, which I don't find true. I, I tried it a couple of times. That's absolutely fair to say, but I haven't been long bonds for quite a while now uh, since uh, Putin invaded uh, Ukraine. So what I received in my inbox was a message stating that um, no one should listen to me because I was wrong. I'm wrong 90% of the time. And I basically replied to this account on Twitter, well, you you essentially need to pay me for that signal if I'm wrong 90% <laughs> of the time, because that's that's a pretty firm signal to have, <laughs> even though I'm wrong. I love it. <laughs> um, I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, where can I buy the inverse Steno ETF? Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Go ahead and make it. <laughs> It, it will make you a truckload of money, apparently. So. <laughs> well, I would say, Andres, um, that we have enough banter and we talk about markets enough. It's now time to talk macro investment ideas here. And uh, this is going to be a quite special edition. So I'll let you introduce our new guest. Well, the guest that I'm about to present for you today um, is a former uh, risk taker. Uh, with a strong Italian accent. Uh, he dislikes pineapple on pizzas to a large mm -hmm. extent. And I, I think you know him. So let's get to it. <laughs> okay. So now we are back with the weekly guest of the macro trading floor. And as you can see, those of you watching on YouTube, we have Mr. Alfonso Picacello in the hot chair today. <laughs> oh my God, guys. Hey, hey, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on the macro trading floor, Andreas. We actually, um, I have to say I'm a bit scared. It's much easier to sit on the other side and just ask questions and yeah. then blubber some risk assessment thingy. And now it's me. So we are doing this because we received quite some feedback that, mm. you know, yeah, you guys, it's easy to criticize others and talk about their trades. You should stick your neck out. Yeah. So here we are. Let's give mm. it a try. Boom. All right. Let's see. Yes. Alfonso, I, I wanted to focus a bit on Europe today, uh, since the two of us are based in, in, in Europe um, and uh, in particular on the European Central Bank, because it is interesting that they are moving slowly but surely towards the exit door on um, the very easy policy that they've been running basically since 2015, in my view. What do you make of the current stance of the European Central Bank? Uh, they have quite a problem, Andreas, I'm yeah. afraid, because they basically since 2012, 2013, they never had to face any inflationary pressures at all any pickup in aggregate demand, any supply bottlenecks. It was all about globalization, global supply chains, on-time supply chains, demand in Europe being always, you know, quite low, structural issues that were preventing growth to pick up. And therefore, you know, inflationary pressures were subdued for most of the time. And now they face a situation where it's the exact opposite. I mean, until a few weeks ago, five-year inflation expectations in Europe were three and a half percent and spot inflation, core inflation in Europe were run, running at around 5% or so. I mean, we're talking about levels that they are really not used to. And it, it, it show, goes to show the fragility of the entire system. I mean, as you well know, the architecture of Europe is 
pretty weird, where we have one monetary policy for 19 different jurisdictions, but every jurisdiction has its own structural issues and structural, uh, you know, positive uh, tailwinds uh, running behind their economy. And, you know, the fiscal policies also run differently in each and every jurisdiction. It's, uh, and in this case, in cases like today, where the European Central Bank is required to act, they basically have one very blunt tool for all the 19 uh, jurisdictions at once, which puts them in trouble, I would say. But given that the European Central Bank for the first time, almost in decades, are, uh, they're faced with inflationary pressures now, but also at the demand side, that seems to be slowing. That probably makes their decision-making a lot tougher this summer compared to what they've been faced with over the past couple of decades. Do you think they will actually go ahead and tighten policy? Yes, they will. And the reason why they will uh, is that I, I posted an article yesterday on the Macro Compass. It's a chart, so it's easier to visualize it. You can maybe pull it over, but for people listening to the podcast, the reaction function of a central banker, Andreas, is mostly linear. Hmm. So they react proportionately tighter or easier monetary, uh, applying tighter or easier monetary policies in a proportionate way if inflation expectations are moving up or down, between 1% and 3%, you might argue. So if inflation, spot inflation and inflation expectation are moving higher towards the 2.5% area, 3% area, they will tighten in a proportional way. And if they're moving down, they will ease in a proportional way. The problem is that this linear reaction function becomes convex at some point. And the convexity is basically when the central bank is required to act in a more than proportional way to send a very strong signal to market participants and consumers. They will put themselves ahead of the curve. And when do, why do they do that? It's because when you are close to the tails, so inflation expectations are 3.5% or they are 1% and below that, you are running the risks of losing credibility, of losing control. And the strongest asset of a central bank is credibility, is forward guidance, which means it requires them to act in a more than proportional way when we approach these tails. And now we are slowly but surely approaching the right tail of the distribution, Andreas, where you know at some point markets are debating whether they're actually doing something to slow down inflation. And if they don't, then your risk is that in, in central bank terms, you de-anchor inflation expectation on the upside, which is terrible. It's as terrible as the left tail, which is running risks of deflation in a credit-based system, right? Which is also terrible. So they like to bring back things in the center of the distribution where they can react linearly. And that is why at this stage, I think they have to act. Now I take you as a representative of the Southern part of the Euro system. Um, if, if you look at the, the, the state of the current inflationary pressures, uh, we've had the debate ongoing all year, whether this is supply driven inflationary pressure or whether it is a demand-driven inflationary pressure. My own take is that a lot of what we see in Europe right now is linked to the war in Ukraine, uh, but also mm -hmm. to uh, the lack of uh, natural resources uh, within the Eurozone in this current uh, geopolitical context. Do you think it matters to the reaction function of the European Central Bank whether they deem it to be supply-driven or demand-driven? Uh, in principle, it should. And it, I think it does until you get too close to this tail on the right where you have to show anyway that you react more than proportionally because you have to get, preserve your credibility. Mm -hmm. So when you are in the middle of the distribution, you can debate, is it demand driven, is it supply? That's what the ECB did, right? Until a few weeks ago, a few months ago, it was supposed to be a hump. It sold due to energy prices. They were all over at some point until you start seeing that inflation expectation over the next five years are three and a half percent on the rest. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, 
all these nuances actually become much less relevant. And so um, the problem that they face really right now is that when they raise interest rates, uh, you always have to ask yourself, when does policy become really tight? When does it slow demand more, more than proportionately by raising interest rates? And the way I, I look at it, and most economists actually also do, is by having an estimate of what the equilibrium interest rate is in, in a given economy, which for Europe is very complicated because, as we said, it's for 19 blended economies mm. together. So Italy will have a certain R star, and then the Netherlands will have a different R star. I mean, they're completely different economies based on completely different um well, sectors and, and um, structural situations. If I try and make an average, then my calculations point to European um, equilibrium real interest rates being around negative 1%, negative 1%, which basically means that for Europe to deliver a potential GDP of, let's say, around about 1% a year, which is a labor supply growth of zero or negative and some productivity on top, right? They need real interest rates at around about negative 1%. Mm. Okay, now, cool. So we were there basically because we had negative deposit rate nominal of minus 50. Forward guidance was for that never to change. You remember, I mean, like in 2020, 2021, we were pricing the ECB to never hike for the next 10 years, if you looked at forward nominal OIS or, you know, ester swaps or other things, we're priced to be forever a negative 50 nominal and inflation expectation were one, one and a half percent. So here you go, we're slightly below this real rate, uh, long-term equilibrium real rate. And now we're talking about the ECB raising rates to plus 25 basis point nominal by the end of the year. And the terminal rate is priced to be at plus 125% in nominal terms by one, one and a half years from now, which will bring the long-term real interest rate, the, the real, the one that is prevalent in the economy at about 0%. And people are like, ah, oh, 0%, I mean, it's nothing. I mean, it's borrowing conditions are very cheap. Well, not really. If the equilibrium is negative 1% because of horrible demographics, because mm -hmm. of an overload of that, because of low productivity, because of all of that, then already a jump from negative one to zero makes things very tight. And it makes things very tight, Andreas, in not in a proportional way across economies. So Germany, the Netherlands, yes, they can, to a certain extent, handle higher um, realized real interest rates and borrowing rates. Italy, Greece, Spain, Portugal, all these guys, do not forget that together with risk-free real interest rates, they also have to pay a spread on top of it. Yes. This is the government now that has to borrow a certain credit spread on top of it, and then the private sector has to, has to borrow another credit spread on top of that, which makes borrowing conditions for them much more tight than uh, the ones that Germany or the Netherlands or Finland or Austria would have to face. Over the past couple of years, uh, the ongoing debate on whether we've seen a regime shift in inflation has been extremely vocal. Uh, but I would like to get your viewpoint on another potential regime shift debate that relates to uh, the policy of the European Central Bank. Because one of the things that happened very uh, swiftly during the uh, COVID pandemic was that the European Union actually gathered around the possibility of issuing common debt. Um, mm -hmm. Let's assume that we can go further down that path that we institutionalize that uh, within the Eurozone, would that over time take our star higher in the Eurozone, you think, if you institutionalize Southern European debt? So the answer is on the margin, yes, mm. conditional to the, the proceeds of this issuance. 
Yeah. So we have this thing in Europe that that is demonized. It's horrible. You can't lever up. It, you, it's not allowed, especially if it's a government. Eh? I mean, government that can't do. Uh, if it's private debt, then yeah, yeah, of course, the Northern European, even Germany, if you look at the contingent liabilities of Germany, so all the KFWs, the development banks, and all basically the government guaranteed institutions that are not sitting directly in the balance sheet, but still they're extending credit to the private sector. Well, these guys can lever up, but the government can't. It needs to be uh, black zero. It needs to be, it needs to be, you know, deficits can't be done. The reality of really economics and accounting is that that is not bad per se. It's the productivity, it's the quality of the debt that gets generated. So if Europe basically takes over um, common issues, which means they sterilize the credit spreads that exist in Spain, Italy, and, and France and other countries, they basically make borrowing costs cheaper in aggregate levels for Europe, which is already an advantage because you're, you know, you're, you're borrowing at cheaper rates on an aggregate level. But the main question for the real growth and for R-Star over time is the use and the proceeds of, this, of these liabilities, right? And so on that, uh, question remain open, I think. It remains open, I think, because, you know, as long as there are productive investments towards enhancing productivity and solving the structural bottlenecks that many European economies have, then I'm all up for it. And our star will go up as a result of that because you lower borrowing costs and use that for productive reasons. Otherwise, it just won't. And you're absolutely right on your point on uh, private debt in the northern part of Europe. I, I can guarantee you that my debt to GDP GDP ratio privately is much worse than the Italian government. So <laughs> I, I simply have no doubt about that. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, fair point. When, when we get um, down to business this summer for the mm. European Central Bank, um, they are, I would say, hinting that uh, the QE program could end already by um, 1st of July and that a interest rate hike could follow basically just after that. What would make uh, the biggest tests for them over the coming months here? What, what do they need to pass before they can actually move in this direction? Well, I think it's basically a done deal that mm. um, QE will be ended, I think just for calendar reasons, for credibility reasons, they have to end it in Q3. Even if it's the first business day of July, yeah, it's okay. going to be Q3 because they went out and they said, yeah, it's going to mm. be Q3. But it's very clear that now the hawks are saying, no, no, let's end it in June. And the doves are saying, oh, for credibility, we should end it in July. But at the end of the day, it's going to be ended um early July, I think that's the base case for everybody, um, which then makes a hike in July already possible. Although, again, from a forward guidance perspective, they went out and said that some time needs to pass between ending QE and hiking. I mean, what is some time? Is it a week, two weeks or two months? Normally speaking, it used to be three months, two to three months mm. between the end of QE and a hike. I think in this situation, because inflation keeps printing very high and they want to be seen again trying to put themselves a bit ahead of the curve, right? They want to be seen not chasing this inflation story, but reacting potentially in, in even a, a more than proportional way. They will end up hiking in 25 basis point steps. I think that is, you know, average expectation. It's going to be proven to be correct. The real question is they do 25 in July, 25 in September, and then we have a 0% rates. But by September, how is the economy looking like? That is That is the main question. I mean, it's like, you look at me like, hey, dude, it's not going to look like awesome. There is a decent chance that we're going to be ending in, actually in recession in several jurisdictions within Europe, if not Europe as an aggregate. So when is the last time that central banks literally kept hiking through a, a real uh, growth slowdown that ended in a recession? 
I honestly don't remember when that was the case, but I don't think we were born. <laughs> I, I probably weren't. Probably weren't. Yeah. And that makes me pretty bearish on the fringes of the more vulnerable balance sheet um, entities that are in Europe, because you are faced with a very bad situation where your borrowing cost and your credit conditions are getting tighter, where also the geopolitical incentive, Andreas, of keeping Euro together. Let's talk about that for a second. So one of the reasons why credit spreads in Europe were sort of capped uh, throughout all these episodes we had from 20. 10 to today is that basically Europe needs to stick together. There is a mm. geopolitical imperative that Europe needs to stick together. It can't be dismantled or otherwise we're going to have, you know, massive negotiation problems with China, Russia, and all mm. the other providers, right? So it needs to stick together. Now, if you make credit spread, if you make BTP boon spread, so Italian government spreads against German government spreads, 300, 400 basis point, right? that starts to become questioned by investors on whether these borrowing costs are sustainable. And so every time then there is a geopolitical imperative where Europe needs to come in together and rescue Greece, Italy. Rescue, it means calm down volatility, mm. make spread actually compress and tell investors it's all going to be fine. Europe stands together. You can buy BTPs actually. Let's just tighten in the spreads. Okay. Today, where do you think geopolitical imperative stands? I mean, of course, we want to keep Europe together, but you know, at the moment we have Euro dollar at below 104. Mm. And this is a terms of trade problem. This is, you know, basically Europe being a net importer. This is uh, Europe not being hawkish and credibly hawkish enough to slow down inflation compared to the Fed and compared mm. to other jurisdictions. So at that point, I would say right now, the credibility stands more towards trying to stop that bleeding in Euro dollar and stop that, you know, that and give more credibility to the monetary policy rather than being scared about BTP boon spreads, which are at 180 basis point. In the last crisis, Andreas, we had them, even in 2018, the political crisis way above 300. During the sovereign debt crisis, we went, well, that was like 500, 600 basis point. So 180 basis point of spread between Italian government bonds and German government bonds is nothing dramatic. And if you look at the the, um, basically the, the outline today to preserve credibility as Europe, I think sending a message that inflation is under control in Europe is more important right now, uh, or the incentive scheme is skewed towards that rather than towards protecting Italian government bond spreads against Germany, which are still pretty low and at the same time still pretty vulnerable. So let's get to it, Alfonso. Uh, it seems as if you are fairly convinced that the European Central Bank will have to do something to contain its credibility on inflation. So how do you want to trade this scenario over summer? I think the, um, one of the most skewed macro trades out there, cross assets, uh, that I talk with clients and also on the macro compass is to be short BTP against bonds. It's not an outright trade, it's a spread between Italian government bonds and German government bonds. So. That is the trade, and you can replicate that uh, via ETFs. You can actually even buy two ETFs. You buy a an inverse BTP ETF, and you buy a Bund ETF, and therefore, you know, by buying both, you're effectively replicating the spread. An easier way with less uh, notional intensive way would be to just do it via futures. There are easily liquid tradable futures, both on the BTP and on the Bunds. Now, um, why do I say that is one of the most skewed trades out there? So in an environment where the ECB has to stop QE, and at the same time, um, commercial banks in Europe will be incentivized to pay back TLTRO loans this year, 
excess liquidity in the eurozone, something that is big times overlooked in my opinion, mm. will drop by about, I think about 700 billion or so, five to 600 billion or so this year. Because QE has added excess liquidity until now, it then will stop. We won't do QT in Europe, obviously, for a while, I think. Yeah. But but the 500 billion that have been added here to date against the about 1 trillion TLTRO repayments, I expect, will basically shrink the balance sheet of the central bank. Yeah. And shrinking the balance sheet of the central bank also means that the banking system on the other side of the equation will have less excess reserves to put at use in these government bonds, which are considered to be high quality liquid assets under uh, European regulation. So we have this shrinking balance sheet already that doesn't help the whole situation. On top of that, as the ECB stops buying, you have Italy that has to refinance about 200 billion of debt over the next 12 to 18 months. And they will have to do that, Andreas, with a marginal net buyer, which is not there anymore, and with the other buyers, which are commercial banks, which will have a, a, a shrinking reserve balance to put at use. Mm. At the same time, they will have to do that as growth is slowing down. And don't forget that in May 2023, in one year, we have elections in Italy as well. And it seems very far, but it's not, because in Italy, we have a history of basically clearing the budget for next year, which happens between October and November. And after that, effectively, you know that the prime minister has resigned because Draghi is not interested in running yeah. another you know, four years. Prime minister, he wants to do something in Europe probably, which means that by October, November, you'll be already talking about what electoral law are we going to use next year in, in Italy and how does the political situation look like? And I can tell you, it doesn't look extremely great. Again, once again. So you're going to have to add that risk on top of it which looks makes the BTP boon spread, given the entry level, as we speak at about 185 basis point, I think pretty attractive because the risk reward of the trade, as my, uh, my uh, shirt says here, uh, is skewed, I believe, to the upside. Before Europe freaks out on BTP boon spread, given all the situation we talked about on inflation and the reaction function, Andreas, we need to be way above 250, 260, 270 basis point before I think they really freak out on a spread level. The only thing about this trade is that it carries and rolls like a dog. So basically, you have to pay to be in the trade by quite a, a wide margin because obviously, you know, the carry on Italian bonds is much better than the one on German government bonds and you're short Italian bonds. So you'll have to pay to be in the trade. I still believe the risk reward of this trade, given the entry level and all the macro backdrop we discussed, is pretty attractive. So we have an Italian saying that you need to short Italian bonds. That is about the strongest signal I, I can imagine. <laughs> as, uh, as they told me in my previous uh, employer, I am the, the most bearish on Italy Italian they've ever met in their life. I'm like, guys, I mean, if we're talking about business, there shouldn't be any colors or flags or nations. It's business, right? If I see a skew trade, then there is yeah, a skew yeah. trade and I'm going to give it a try. And I can be wrong, of course, and there are stops as well. As I say always on the macro compass, I'm right about 54% of the times. This could be one of the times where I'm wrong, but I do believe this is a uh, skewed risk reward trade, which we can you can do via futures or you can do via ETFs as well by buying two ETFs together, the BTP inverse ETF and just uh, uh, an ETF that replicates the Bund at the same time. Let's assume that you're wrong on this trade, Alfonso. Uh, which triggers would you look for in terms of, of stopping out on, on this trade? 
Uh, okay, so if I am wrong, I'm wrong for two potential reasons. The first is that nothing happens. And then I'm wrong because the carry just mm. eats me alive because it really, it really carries bad. So then basically six months, nothing happens, Andreas, and I lose like, I don't know, 20 basis points. I, haven't, uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I lose quite a lot on the trade if nothing happens for six months. So that's one way to be wrong. Nothing happens. The other way to be wrong is if um, the European Central Bank gets properly scared about a growth slowdown and they start rethinking their exit strategy from negative interest rates, which would mean they hike to maybe 0%. Okay, let's assume that is a done deal. But then after that, the market is pricing in as forwards another 100, 125 basis point hikes over the next nine months after that, Andreas. Mm. And as soon as the ECB signals that maybe that is not the case, then you know forwards and interest rates have to reprice everything back in. Together with that, also credit spreads will reprice back in because they will assume as the as the central bank doesn't hike, they will try to lean more dovish, which increases the chance that at some point later in the future we'll have to restart QE. And then I'm wrong two times, both because nothing has happened for a couple of months and on top of it, expectation get repriced dovishly. Let, let me add a third potential scenario to that. I, I, uh, I recall late last year uh, when I was still on uh, the sell side in an investment bank that I toured institutional clients with the message that I find it likely that the European Central Bank will hike to 0%, but that they will continue buying bonds alongside it. Um, mm. I don't know whether you find any likelihood of such a scenario prolonged QE with interest rate hikes just because it's the only way to get out of negative territory on uh, on the policy rate. Actually, it might be one reason. I think it's more of a tail risk, but it might be one reason why I'm wrong. And yeah. ultimately, Andreas, as long as the central bank signals a dovish shift compared to expectations, I will be wrong anyway. Because, you know, of course, BTP boon spreads will be more buoyed by QE. It, it literally goes and, and lifts away BTPs from the private sector hands, that helps more directly. But also on a second round effect, I'm wrong anyway. If they signal a dovish stance, if it is on interest rates, I'll probably be wrong anyway, just because of the dovish stance against forwards. Um, I don't think that we're going to get there before things get worse. So as if I'm right, then things get worse before they can get better, which means I can take some profits on the trade before that, if I'm wrong, but I, if I'm right, but I could be wrong. Thanks for this, Alfonso. Let's uh, just summarize for the listeners. You want to be long the German Bund versus being short the Italian uh, BTP. Uh, and you target a spread between the two curves of around plus 250 basis points or a bit above that from today's levels around 185 basis points. Yes, if I would have, a, if, if entering the trade, I have already the trade on, but today, mm -hmm. looking at today's levels, uh, I normally target two standard deviation moves on a monthly basis. That's about 50 basis point. So that's like 235, 240 as my first target. I think we're going to see there these levels. And if I'm wrong, then, you know, at roundabout these levels, I'd have to stop out at, you know, 25, 30 basis point lower than we are today, which would mean that I'm really wrong. If BTP boon spreads rally all the way back to 150, then I'm definitely wrong and I would need to stop out. But Andreas, um, I mean, I also have a guest to interview today. I mean, uh, the guy is, is, he's big. He's, uh, you know, one of the most respected macro strategists out there. He has a wealth of knowledge. Uh, we're taking too much time to do this interview. I have to, I have to call in this guest. I mean, he needs to get a spot as well. And so it's my great pleasure to now introduce this very well-known and renowned macro strategist, 
apparently is known to be a guy uh, that lives in Nordics, looks like a Viking. Um, it's my friend, Andreas Steno Larsen. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so, mate, it's time to stick the neck out for you as well. So let's cut the chase yes. and let's uh, get, get on with it. So people on Fintwit can then tell you you're wrong this time too. All right. So let's look at the Andreas Steno yes. contrarian indicator again. And um, <laughs> so we were talking about ECB, mate, and I know that your trade somehow involves the reaction function of the ECB as well, but, you know, just as a portion of the trade. So let's walk us through the, your, your rationale here. Well, we, we just uh, talked about how the European Central Bank would like to be forced into doing something due to the inflationary pressures, uh, which also involves stopping uh, the QE program mm -hmm. already within a month or two uh, from, from the time we record here. Um, and I find that a really interesting scenario from an FX perspective. Uh, I'm born and raised in, uh, in FX markets uh, and I think FX markets, they puzzle a lot of people because you have a lot of moving variables when you look at FX markets and they are not all rational. Mm -hmm. um, so when we talk about the European Central Bank, usually uh, the main take would be that when a central bank moves towards policy normalization, uh, tightening of financial conditions, et cetera, it's actually a good uh, story for the underlying mm -hmm. currency of the central bank. In this case, if the European Central Bank moves towards uh, ending the QE program, it should be perceived as a positive for the euro. But it's not necessarily uh, that easy a story for the European Central Bank because of the underlying structural issues of trying to tighten policy in the eurozone. Uh, every time we've had a massive spread widening on Italian bonds versus core bonds in the eurozone, we've actually seen the euro selling off against most peers instead of gaining. Uh, and that's kind of the issue for the European Central Bank in an FX perspective, because I think you're right um, in, in the interview we just did that the European Central Bank would actually like the euro to stabilize now, also to contain inflationary pressures that you import. But if they go down a road of, of quick monetary policy tightening, then they actually risk uh, allowing spreads to widen so much that investors lose trust in the euro anyway. Hmm. Uh, so they're damned if they do, they're damned if they don't. So that's what I'm telling you. Basically, they are fucked. We can say that, right? Yeah, yes. we can say that. So if they would go and tighten aggressively to gain credibility on the euro dollar story and stop importing inflation by a weaker euro, then they would risk of blowing up BTP boon spreads or other spreads anyway, uh, Greece or whatever, Portugal, Spain. And that would weaken the credibility uh, as the Eurozone project. And then the Euro would depreciate anyway as the result. Is that more or less a fair summary? Yeah, I mean, if, if, you, if you look at uh, the Euro exchange rate, it has to factor in uh, various scenarios for the development of the Eurozone over time. Uh, and if you allow spreads to widen materially, it increases the implied probability of some kind of blow up of the eurozone. I'm not saying that it's a base case in any uh, in any material way, but it increases the implied probability of the eurozone facing troubles and having to again come together, issuing common debt, uh, maybe restarting QE as a consequence of what's happening and all that. Uh, so my main take is that if the European Central Bank tries to really normalized policy tries to contain inflation, then we should actually expect the euro to eventually sell off on that news. But Andreas, um, the euro to sell off, we're talking mostly about, I guess, the dollar as a reference. Um, mm. So if you look at uh, the other side of the uh, ocean and we focus for a second on mm. the dollar, 
it has been relentlessly appreciating in trade weighted terms. It has be, it has had one of the fastest rallies over the last month that it has ever experienced over the last thirty years. And don't forget the dollar. It is one of the major. It is one component of the financial condition index. So it is achieving that yes. job for the Fed as well. It has had quite a move. Do you think we are done there? And why do, did we see such a move anyway? Well. First, first of all, I think it's interesting that we've seen such a move in the dollar uh, at a time when the global economy actually did well, uh, because I would usually say that the dollar is sort of inversely correlated to global growth. Every time global growth goes up, the dollar sells off and vice versa. I mean, in, in general terms, that holds. Um, so what happened during the early parts of this year was that the Fed started taking care of the inflationary situation much earlier than peers. And I think this is a reason why we've seen such a, a solid move in the dollar, because the Fed, maybe already early this year or, or very late last year, started to, to move ahead of the uh, curve of inflation expectations in a way that we didn't see the European Central Bank do, or the, uh, for that matter, the Bank of Japan mm-hmm. uh, in, that, in that matter. Um, and I think that that's very important for the story that we've seen unfold in, in, in dollar space, that the, the Federal Reserve has actually slowly but surely regained a bit of control of, of the inflationary situation compared to the Eurozone. Uh, and you can also see it in priced inflation now. Uh, the Eurozone inflation is priced to remain very elevated over Q3 and into Q4, while the market has slowly but surely accepted that the US inflation will start to vein in, uh, during those quarters. Um, and I think that's a consequence of the sort of difference in reaction functions that we've seen from the Fed uh, and the ECB. And I essentially expect this story to continue. Um, but then you add another layer to that story being that global trade is starting to slow. Mm-hmm. Dollar liquidity is starting to dwindle due to the fact that the Federal Reserve will uh, eventually force the amount of dollars in the financial system uh, lower. Uh, and then you essentially have the perfect cocktail for a very strong dollar environment coming up in the second half of the year. So Andres, let's walk the guests through a couple of the things that you said. Why mm-hmm. if, go, let's assume global trade slow down because economic growth is slowing down anyway and central banks are trying to tighten and all of that. Why does that mechanically appreciate the dollar against other currencies? Well, I think there are two sources of dollar liquidity by the end of the day, one being global trade conducted in dollars, and the second being the liquidity added by the US central bank itself. If if we start with the global trade situation, the reason why uh, it is a liquidity adding mechanism is that when global growth explodes to the upside, then you usually uh, connect that with a... um, clear trade deficit of the United States. Mm -hmm. And when the United States runs an increasing deficit uh, in trade, it essentially means that they export dollars to uh, the countries that export um, goods and services to the United Mm -hmm. States. Uh, And it basically allows foreigners an easier access to dollar liquidity when there is a growth in global trade conducted in dollars as a consequence of that. So when we have the opposite situation with growth slowing, global trade slowing, it means that for every month, the access to dollar liquidity abroad worsens as a consequence of global uh, trade slowing down. So that's on on one hand. 
an issue that uh, we will likely face in the second half of the year as foreigners um, uh, leading for dollar liquidity. Secondly, uh, the Federal Reserve is also sort of a, a, a liquidity uh, operator mm -hmm. in, um, in the dollar system. Uh, and when they move towards quantitative tightening uh, already uh, within a few weeks from now, then uh, we will very mechanically see the amount of bank reserves um, in, in dollars slowing down um, as a consequence of that process. Uh, we've been talking about this technical issue of uh, whether uh, the dollar liquidity pact at the reverse repo facility will act as a sort of sugar code on this quantitative tightening process, but it requires a lot more short-term collateral being unleashed in the market than what we see right now. So I don't really think that this will sugarcoat the process in any way. So it essentially means that you have slowing liquidity or actually diminishing liquidity, both from the trade front and also from uh, the central bank policy of the Federal Reserve. And if you have those two liquidity uh, mechanisms working in tandem, then you have a very high hit rate in my view of being long the dollar. Okay. So basically what you're saying is that all these foreign entities that are levered up in dollars or exposed to dollar trades, as global growth slows down, they can't get their hand on enough dollars to service their liabilities basically, which means that they either have to deleverage, which is bad for growth and you know generally good for the dollar, in generally speaking, or otherwise they have to grasp and get their hand on spot dollars to try and service their liabilities. Yes. And that beats up the dollar. Okay, I understand that. Then we go to bank reserves. And that is an interesting story because what you're saying is the Federal Reserve will do QT. They have announced it. They've already started it. And there was one thought around in the market that the, the money park at the reserve repo facility, uh, it's about $2 trillion almost, would be able to sterilize that quantitative tightening. So that so let's explain for a second how that would work and why do you think that's not going to happen because you say it's basically just mechanically impossible at this stage well uh, a lot of the money parked on the reserve uh, repo facility uh, by the end of the day belongs to money market funds mm -hmm. uh, so their alternative to parking uh, these dollars at the reverse repo facility would be short-term uh, fixed income instruments basically uh, the most likely instrument being a T-bill. Mm -hmm. uh, and to tempt those dollars away from the reverse repo facility and back into the T-bill market, you would essentially need, first of all, enough T-bills for that to happen. Um, and secondly, T-bills uh, trading at implied yield levels above the reverse repo facility yield. Mm -hmm. uh, and currently, uh, you basically haven't uh, got a check mark in front of either of those two assumptions. So there aren't enough T-bills around uh, to attract the money out of the reverse repo facility and T-bills aren't trading um, at a level that could tempt them to take money out of the reverse repo facility and back into the uh, bill market. Uh, and I essentially um, assumed a couple of months ago that the US Treasury would be aware of this situation and that they could uh, see uh, a, a scenario in front of them where they unleashed a lot of T-bills to the market to try and tempt these uh, park dollars out of the reverse repo facility again, but they didn't end up concluding that in the uh, recent refunding, uh, quarterly refunding report. Um, instead, they lowered the issuance pace uh, and they still distributed across the, the curve. And of course, there are arguments on uh, of, of why they need to distribute 
issuance across the curve because otherwise you get a very liquid uh, far end of the curve if you only unleash tuples. Um, but nonetheless, this is um, something that I don't expect to change over the coming couple of quarters since there aren't enough short-term collateral around for um, for these money packed at the reverse repo facility uh, to, to be unleashed. And what that means, Andreas, is that the only way for the Federal Reserve to reduce their balance sheet would therefore be to reduce as well the liability side of the balance sheet, which is bank reserves. And so bank yes. reserves have to contract to basically accounting match the asset side of the balance sheet, which would be reduced because the Federal Reserve doesn't reinvest maturities according to a certain cap each month. And uh, reducing bank reserves actually uh, ends up being a support for the dollar. Can you walk us through why do you think that's the case? Well, by the end of the day, um, the amount of reserves in the interbank system in dollars is very tightly connected to uh, the liquidity premium in money markets in um, in dollar space. Uh, so I essentially think that slowly but surely we will move towards a scenario where uh, you will get a liquidity premium back in LIBOR mm -hmm. versus uh, the OIS curve. Um, and usually you see a very tight correlation between liquidity premiums in uh, in money markets in the US versus Europe uh, and the subsequent development in uh, foreign exchange space. So if we have a very high LIBOR print mm -hmm. compared to Euribor in Europe, higher in the US versus Europe here, then um, you should expect the dollar to gain from that situation versus the euro. Uh, so slowly but surely, the QT process will likely lead to a, uh, a stronger dollar as well by that mechanism. There is a mix of slowing global trade that makes people, basically foreign entities leveraging in dollars or dependent on dollar liquidity and flows scramble for spot dollar and a drop in excess reserves, which is the only release valve for quantitative easing, which would increase somehow the interbank liquidity risk premium overall, would both lead to a dollar appreciation. Then you talked about euro before and you said that however you slice and dice it mate it seems that these guys will have a problem in making euro stronger i mean if we, if they try with the hawkish monetary policy then they're going to have a problem with spreads and credibility from that perspective which is going to lower the euro anyway so it sounds to me like you're trying to set up a trade here does it <laughs> i think i think you're on to something uh my my main take is essentially to add a long dollar spot position uh, versus a basket of uh, currencies. Um, and I think the easiest way to implement this uh, would be via an, an, a bullish dollar ETF versus what, what is usually called the G10 currencies. Mm -hmm. uh, you will get a large exposure to euro and euro-like currencies in, in that basket. Uh, and it is uh, actually tradable. Um, as, as a uh, ETF product. Uh, for example, you have the DBUS dollar index bullish fund. Um, and uh, it is uh, a fairly liquid and tradable and um, uh, efficient ETF called UUP in, um, in abbreviation terms. Uh, and um, it is an index that tracks the dollar versus um, the nine other currencies in the so-called G10 basket. So that would be Canada, uh, Europe, uh, Sweden, Norway, uh, Japan, etc. Um, and I think it's a good position also to enter if you have 
um, a load of, of equities in your portfolio already, for example, because this is like an, an anti-position uh, that will help you sort of protect against the scenario with, with low visibility, low risk um, uh, sentiment and, 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 and so on. Now that you heard Mr. 90% wrong being long the UUP ETF, the Deutsche Bank or Invesco, uh, dollar bullish ETF, you know that you can yeah. be a bear dollar and with a 90% hit rate, according to our FinTech critics, <laughs> you'll be right. You'll be right. So it's time to short the dollar. That's what you're saying. Being serious yeah. for a second, Andreas, um, what could go wrong with the trade? Um, given that I, I have sort of build a lot of trust in the Federal Reserve being in front of inflation expectations compared to the uh, ECB here, the big question mark in front of this trade would be if uh, things started to break in a material way in credit markets, mm -hmm. allowing the Fed to pivot very, very swiftly. Because then as soon as, soon as the Federal Reserve pivots towards an easier policy stance, then this trade will go wrong. Mm -hmm. And it will happen very, very quickly. Because this trade sort of assumes that the Federal Reserve will be the tightest among uh, the G10 central banks to a large extent. Um, and that could go wrong if we get a material break in credit space. But I actually think that the trade will perform initially in that scenario, but then you need to get out of it. Uh, you, you will likely get a reaction like this in the dollar up and then swiftly down in such a scenario. But so the up part first would work your way. And if you apply you know, risk management and you have trailing stops and profit targets, you can still benefit from that scenario. Is there a scenario where this just doesn't work? I mean, literally trends down all the way. Um, I, I think the the issue for for this trade uh, could be that the U.S. still has a credibility issue in terms of the double deficit, uh, and if we assume that the market will will uh, sort of focus on the double deficit of the U.S. again, which is worse than what we see in many other places, uh, then um, then this trade could go wrong. And one way. Of, uh, of getting there would be if we saw a material stabilization of the whole energy inflation question, because the US is actually in a better spot than most peers in this basket of currencies when it comes to, to energy. Uh, we have Japan and Europe being the two worst uh, performers worldwide on the sort of uh, on the overall energy question. So if we get a slowdown in natural gas prices uh, and oil prices, uh, maybe we get uh, 10 to 20 percent lower here. Then this trade will definitely not yeah, work. That makes a lot of sense. Well, um, Andreas, thanks for being a guest on the macro trading floor. Must be a new experience for you. You're not used to it. <laughs> it's been uh, fun having you here. But guys, stick with us for a couple of minutes more because we have uh, something else to digest at the end of the show. And back from uh, this very special episode of the Macro Trading Floor with myself and my buddy Andreas stick our neck out. Um, so on Andreas trade, as we always do, we do a post segment section here where I speak in the face of Mr. Steno Larsen and I tell him he's wrong. No, actually, um, if I look at the composition of things here being long dollar, to be honest, as long as you believe that the energy situation is going to be sorted out anytime soon, um, supply bottlenecks as well coming from China. So basically the trade flows are going to become more complicated and or come to a halt completely. And on top of that, if you believe that inflation isn't going to turn enough for the Federal Reserve to be more dovish, 
so to, to turn on the dovish side and surprise market expectations dovishly, this trade is going to work. And so as I believe both are my assumptions so that, you know, economic growth and trades are going to remain pretty sluggish this year and the inflation situation isn't going to solve anytime soon in a, in a, in a, in a fast enough pace that allows the Fed to surprise the markets from the dovish side, I think it makes sense also as a portfolio hedge to own this UUP ETF if you're long risk assets. It should be one of the few uncorrelated uh, assets out, out there being long the dollar. So nothing to say against the guy who's wrong 90% of the times, which means I'm going to be wrong too. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, to be absolutely fair, Alfonso, I think the two trades that we suggested, uh, your trade being long the Bund uh, in a spread versus the Italian BTP, and this trade of being long dollar versus euro effectively, the same those two trades, they are correlated. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I mean... By the end of the day, I would like to buy your trade as well. So basically, it's a, it's a risk of a situation where conditions are getting tighter across the world. And mm -hmm. in this environment where central banks are also getting, you know, where central banks are getting tighter and economic growth is slowing down, correlations tend to go to one very quickly across the board, which makes you're basically either long vol or short vol here, or you're either long the dollar or you're short the dollar against anything else. Basically, that's what it is right now. It's very difficult to find proper uncorrelated positive return assets out there. So it's you're either long risk or short risk at this stage. And uh, Andreas and I apparently agree on being short risk. Um, but yeah. let's ask the guest actually, Andreas, to uh, give us feedback on that because we have invited uh, so far uh, three or four guests to the show. They come up with a trade idea. Um, please guys, let us know if you would like Andreas and I to stick our neck out once in a while, or you just prefer us to shut up and be the hosts and get guests on board, Andreas, what do you say? <laughs> well, uh, it, it was a fun exercise, uh, this one. Um, and I would like to do it like every month or so, and then have like three guests in between. Uh, but please leave us uh, the feedback in the uh, comments section on YouTube, uh, Spotify, Apple, etc. Uh, if, if you want us to continue with uh, basically interviewing each other every once in a while. We will, of course, keep inviting guests, um, but every once in a while we could do this. So let us know whether you would like yeah. it or not. And um, the other thing we're going to be doing, Andreas, for our audience is to very soon publish a spreadsheet that tracks the trade ideas uh, from the guests. And we're going to try and be fair, which means we're going to look at a, we're going to standardize a couple of things for the trade. So we're going to basically say that the time horizon is six months for everybody. So it's like a European option with expiry after six months. We're going to draw a line there, and then we're going to look at the risk-adjusted performance of each trade. And we're going to pick at each other from time to time, including at myself and Andreas, to see who's performing the best or the least worst, if you're long risk assets nowadays, across the, the board. Let's do that. Uh, and in, in any case, I would actually be extremely proud if someone invented a short stain with ETF. <laughs> yeah. but, I, I think <laughs> at some point they will have, uh, they will use us as underlying contrary indicators on this, but that's fine as well. We're here for the fun. Um, last yes. thing, last guys, thanks for sticking with us for the whole time. The downloads of this uh, uh, podcast are always very high. We're super grateful for that. Um, Subscribe to the, your favorite podcast app, Spotify, Apple, whatever it is, Google. Nowadays, we're everywhere. And the YouTube channel of Blockworks as well. Uh, if you want to receive notifications about the podcast so you don't miss the episodes, we're out any Sunday anyway. Thanks really a lot for the support we have received. It's been huge. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, see you next Sunday. Bye.